Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Let's Talk Low Vision, brought to you by the Council of Citizens with Low Vision International. My name is Dr. Bill Takeshta, and this evening we're very, very pleased to have a panel of guests on the show who will tell us about different situations that they have encountered being low vision, and they will also share with us how it is that they have learned to deal with these uncomfortable situations. Before we begin the program this evening, I'd like to thank Mr. Dick Burden with Airs LA. And Airs LA, they do a great job of recording these programs for us every month at www.airsla.org. At this point in time, I'd like to ask each of our members who are on our panel to go ahead and to introduce themselves. So let's begin with the ladies. Uh, I know that we have, uh, is it Kathy? Yes, Kathy Lyons in Buffalo, New York. Thank you very much for calling in. And Kathy, can you tell us a little bit about your vision? Are you low vision or are you like me, totally blind? I still have light perception. So I have a condition similar to RP. So when I was in second grade, I had 2070 vision with correction, but it's progressive. So I never had night vision. I never had peripheral, and it's progressive. So now I view the world through the bathroom window. I have a visual field of approximately one and a half degrees. And since 2012, there's been some kind of filmy whatever in my eye that I can no longer see people's faces or colors very well. Okay, thank you. Thank you. So you've really gone from a, a very large range of vision, and you're at the point now where even with the amount of vision you have, I'm certain you've learned to use that amount very effectively. Yes, I can still play solitaire on the computer. Oh, that's but great. But that's, that's about <laughs> the extent of my usable vision, except for light and dark. That's really helpful. Oh, I mean, I'm sure great. if I went total, I would miss that light perception greatly. Great, thank you. And uh, next we have uh, Raquel calling in from Los Angeles. Yes, hi. Uh, my name is Raquel Desipeta, and so I have retinitis pigmentosa. Um, I my my retinitis uh, was progressive. I was able to see a little bit more when I was younger, until I was 15 years old, and then from then on. Um, it just started deteriorating more and more. Uh, so now I have a light percep- perception left, uh, which is I'm very thankful for. So I could still see, you know, light and dark and big shadows, and it still, you know, um, helps me find the doors and windows. And, and uh, sometimes I could still see colors as well um, if I put a dark-colored uh, clothing uh, against uh, a white background, and I could still kind of distinguish, you know, what color it was, um, you know, red, black, or dark blue, things like that. That's so, great, um, because, you know, you then learn that every bit, it, it does come handy at certain times. So uh, thank you very, very much. And mm-hmm. uh, we also have from Pennsylvania, we have Ed. Hello, Ed. Yes. Hi, Dr. Bill. 
Well, thank you very much for being on the show. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about your vision? Do you have any vision, or are you partially sighted? Yes, I have um, partial vision. My acuity is about 2,400, which I've had pretty much since birth. So this is something that, this is really all that you know. It doesn't seem to you as though, boy, my vision was so much better before. What you see now is the way that you always remember your vision being? Yes, that's that's correct. Yeah, I, um, I've never experienced um, higher vision, um, not much anyway. It, it's, it's pretty much, I'm... I'm in my late 50s, so um, um, I really haven't, fortunately, haven't seen any other vision difficulties. Uh, My condition is in the optic nerve, so I'm still susceptible to my my eyes changing and and, uh, some other things happening. But fortunately, um, my eyes have been healthy otherwise. And, uh, Ed, may I ask, are you currently working, or are you retired, or are you just unemployed? Well, I'm I'm kind of self-employed. I did IT for 17 years, and then um, I, um, we, my wife and I operate a bed and breakfast together here in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. So that's my main activity, and then I'm also... Um, um a certified counselor and I do I do some counseling and uh, sort of faith-based church-based things um so wow, that's uh, wonderful that's wonderful and is your counseling specific to help people who have low vision or their family members or do you do all sorts of counseling oh all sorts um marriage marriage and family individual um I um I used to work for the local blind association as an assistive tech uh trainer but I I kind of phased that out too so I don't really work with um people with low vision anymore directly but I had it one time Gosh that's fantastic I mean you've really developed a very successful career and you know as a doctor myself i'm a an eye doctor i used to be an eye doctor and i'm just thinking at this point in time you are legally blind but you've been able to do internet technology you've been able to do counseling you've been able to own your own business i mean you're a very successful man so congratulations yeah yeah it's it's taken it's taken some adapting to um, different environments to um, achieve that. But, um, um, you know, related to our call, I guess the some of my greatest needs or things I haven't figured out yet is in the social realm, how to interact in, in social settings. I'm great in in the environments where I'm familiar around my house and and uh you know I can achieve things find ways to get things done um when I'm 
in my familiar environment. But when I can't control the situation and can't control how other people respond, that's a little different. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, that's a good topic for us to talk about this evening. That is preparation. As people with low vision or people who are blind, we do have to prepare a bit more. So we'll get back to you with that in just a moment. Thank you for coming on the show. And our last person on the panel tonight, uh, we have from New York, Ken. How are you, Ken? Hi. I'm so good. <laughs> Great. Why don't you tell us a bit about your present level of vision and uh, if you're currently retired or employed or unemployed? Uh, self-employed and very active in community organizations and so forth. And um, I started as a high partial, I think. But uh, eye doctors never did a real good job of diagnosing me. Apparently, I have very eye conditions. But I learned from self-discovery in about my teenage years that I had no central vision, what I call now immaculate perception. And so I learned to put my blind spot on other people so they wouldn't be dis disoriented by me looking like I was looking away from them. Uh, <laughs> yes, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. There's yeah. so many people that they will look away, and to a person who has normal vision, they would think that this person's not even paying attention to me, but you would be looking at them with your peripheral vision, wouldn't you? Yeah, and the doctor's apparently didn't figure that I through, put the two and two together myself from a couple of experiences I had from other people. But uh, once I started aiming my blind spot at people, I started bumping into other pedestrians on the sidewalk for the first time. But oh. my was good enough that I won a, a blue ribbon once in the county fair for one of my photographs. So my, my purple vision uh, worked very well for me. But in recent years, that's diminishing too. So nowadays, in full daylight, I I, I see on my total. But uh, at night, I can see a full moon. I can see headlights and bright store windows and that kind of thing. So the uh, lighting conditions can vary. And my eyes sometimes surprise me how much I can see, and sometimes they surprise me how little I can see. And uh, in retrospect, now I know why my ex-wife used to get disturbed with me when I wore it, didn't wear the shirt she told me to. Uh, I think I don't think I had color vision. I think I've probably been colorblind my whole life without realizing because my brain filled in the, the missing ingredients. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, thank you very much. Thank you very much for joining the show. So this evening we have a, a group of individuals who have different types of eye diseases. Some people have the same disease, but you could tell that their level of vision is very different, even if you have the same disease. And that is something that people do have to be aware of, is that your vision may be very different than another person who has that same eye disease. I actually had normal vision until I was late in my year of 42 years of age, and I was diagnosed with a disease called rod cone degeneration. I just couldn't believe it. I was looking inside the eye of a patient, and I noticed that there was a spot in the eye. When I moved my eye to look at a different spot, that spot moved, and I then realized it wasn't her eye, it was my eye. I went to see many, many, many doctors. I went anonymously because I didn't want them to know that Dr. Bill has a vision problem. How can you be an eye doctor if you have a vision problem? But unfortunately for me, the vision problem that I had was one with a very, very poor prognosis. And it was about six years later that I became totally blind. And at this point in time, I am totally blind and I don't see. But what I can tell you 
is that I have learned from friends such as all of you who are on these calls, I have learned how to live with low vision. I did not want to live with low vision. My life came to a point where I had it all set out that I was going to walk in front of a bus as a bus came down this hill on a blind curve and I would get run over. This would be the best solution because nobody would know that I actually committed suicide, but my family would receive life insurance money and my family wouldn't have to deal with having a blind man around the house who was grouchy and angry. But something changed and I learned that I need to value life. Committing suicide is the most selfish thing that I could ever do. And when I decided that I was going to change, and I began to go to church, and I listened to the word of the pastor, I realized that there's so many of us, every man, woman, and child has some sort of problem in his or her life but we could overcome these problems by learning how to cope with it, by having faith in knowing that things will be better, and I think most of all by helping others. One of the things that I remember very, very immediately is the fact that when I first became low vision, I didn't want to leave the house. I'm certain many of you thought that, that you didn't want to leave the house. Why didn't I want to leave the house? Because if I left the house and somebody was across the street yelling my name, I wouldn't know who that person is. And I definitely wasn't going to ask them, hey, by the way, what's your name? Because they would then wonder, what's wrong with your vision? So I didn't want to go out of the house. But once in a while, I would venture out of the house. My wife took me out of town. We had to go and visit some relatives. We were in the parking lot of a Safeway grocery store. And as I was walking with my wife, I didn't see those cement parking things that are in the parking lot. You know, the things that the cars will roll their wheels against. And as I was walking, oh my goodness, I tripped and I fell and I fell so hard. It hurt so bad. I just couldn't believe how much that it hurt. And what I heard, I didn't hear people saying, hey, you all right? Let me help you. I heard a group of young kids. These kids were high school age kids, and they started to tease me. They were laughing up a storm, and they said, hey, are you okay? What's the matter with you? Are you drunk? Can't you walk? They said everything that they could say, and I was just so humiliated. I wanted to get up. I wanted to go over there and try to fight them. But I knew that I can't fight these kids. They would have beat me up, all of them. But it was one of those experiences that made it for me such that I did not want to leave my house. And I became very, very, very isolated. So this was something that became very, very bad because I lost track of a lot of my friends. It even got to the point for me that I changed my telephone number on my home phone. I didn't want anybody to call and say, Bill, we're so sorry. We heard that you had to retire because you're going blind. 
I didn't want to talk to anybody, and I didn't want to hear anybody say anything like that. I didn't want my wife to know that I was going blind. It was okay for them to know that I had a vision problem, but I didn't want them to think that I was going blind. I didn't even want my kids to know there was anything wrong with me at all. When my wife would say, hey, you guys, let's go here or there. Most of the time I'd say, hey, you guys, I got work to do. I'll catch up with you guys when you get back home. Why did I do that? Because I didn't want my kids to know that I cannot drive anymore. I was too embarrassed to say, hey, you guys, mom's got to drive because dad can't see very well. I didn't want that either. So I isolated myself, and this became one of the worst things ever. Because when nobody called me or nobody came to visit and I wouldn't leave my house, all I could think of was, how in the world could God be doing this to me? If there was really a God, he wouldn't let this happen to me. Raquel, has this ever happened to you in your series of stages of going through your vision change? You said you started to notice your vision changing when you were in your teenage years. Was that correct? Yes. Yes, and I had the same things uh, like she did. I mean, of course, you know, as a teenage girl, um, it was very embarrassing. Uh, I went through a lot of those things where I asked questions. I, I keep saying, why me? Why, what did I do to deserve this kind of fate? Um, what's going to happen to me now? Who's going to want a blind girl like me? Who's going to want a blind woman like me? Um, you know, will I, will I have, uh, will I ever, will, will a man, you know, will I ever have a boyfriend or a husband? Um, what's, what's going to, <laughs> what's going to happen? And, and I went through, um, you know, times also where uh, it's probably better off if I just die now, if I just commit suicide. Um, but, uh, I mean, you know, as, as years go by, you just learn to cope. You just learn, um, um, you know, to to say... I mean, actually, what happened was um, I met a blind teacher. Um, I was in high school. I just I just graduated high school, and I did not know how to use Braille. My eyesight was really going bad then already. So I decided before I go to college, I was going to um, uh, have you know learn some Braille. And so my tutor was a blind teacher. And so from him, I learned that it's okay to be blind. Um, he, he told me that there's nothing wrong, there's nothing to be ashamed of um, being blind because you could still do things. You could still live your life. You could still live a productive life. And so, um, so from from then, from then on, um, I learned that okay, um, I guess you know, there's really all I have to do is to learn the alternative ways of doing things. 
Why did you believe her, Raquel, when she told you that? Was there anything about her that you saw that led you to think, hey, she's she's a normal woman leaving, living a normal life? Why did you believe yes. her? Yes. Yes. Oh, well, it, it was a him. Um, yes, I, I because you know I saw him and he was he was a teacher. He was teaching this other blind kids. Uh, um, he was teaching at the school for the blind in the Philippines, and so I saw him. And then I met all of these other blind um, people, kids, and teenagers at the school, and um, and. It's like life is just normal. I mean, um, you know, they they still do um, all kinds of things, and they 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 still travel. Um, they they could still, uh, you know, they 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 could still go to different places and stuff. So, so seeing them, uh, that it it gave me hope. Yes. That uh, yeah. You know, and that that was one of the things that had happened to me. As I was going through some serious changes in my vision very quickly, I ended up going to open house for my daughter at middle school. And one of my patients who also had RP was a teacher at that school. It was called Nobel Middle School. And I said, hey, I'm going to go in here and say hi to Mr. Christian. I just want to say hi. I haven't seen him in a long time. And when I went in there and said hi to him, he had already heard that I had retired. And he grabbed my hand, and we walked hand in hand. I was so embarrassed. I said, why is he holding my hand like this? We look terrible, two men walking like this. But he showed me his classroom. He showed me everything that his students did. They had a terrarium. They had a saltwater aquarium. They had an electric shop, wood shop. They had a music center. He showed me how his blind students were doing all of these things. And he said, hey, you know what? You didn't think blind people could do this, did you? And I said, no, I didn't. He says, well, I'm coming over Saturday, and you're going to learn how to do all these things Saturday. And that was my beginning of having hope to learn that something could be done. Kathy, how about you? What were some of the experiencing things that you you had really, really had to think about and to understand whether or not it's okay to be low vision or to tell other people if you had this vision problem? Did any of these things happen to you from the general public? Yes. Um, I never fit in in high school. Uh, I was the only student in the whole class that had a vision problem, and I don't think they understood. And I, at that time, didn't know that it was just going to progress on and on and on. But one of the saving graces was there was a woman in this area who taught the blind downhill skiing. And she also taught cross-country skiing to the blind. And I got involved in that group. And when we were out cross-country skiing... Those were my healthiest winters. When I got out skiing a lot, I didn't get sick all winter. And it allowed me to meet some people who had varying degrees of vision, and it didn't seem to stop them. So that was a real, pardon the pun, eye-opener for me. (laughs) 
but when I went way back before that, when I was in college, I had readers, and that was about it. And I don't know how, well, I had a lot more vision back then, but I couldn't see anything that was ever written on the blackboard or anything like that, so I had to depend on other people to get that information to me. I did, though, after college, I went to work for the Internal Revenue Service, and I worked there for 27 years, and they got me a computer with JAWS, and we had uh, Kurzweil that would convert a printed document to a read document. Wow. So there was a lot of equipment there that allowed me to do the job, even though I couldn't see things that the sighted co-workers could see. Wow. Now, how did you do that? How did you get a job with Internal Revenue Service, a job that is so visually demanding? How did you go to apply for a job there? Well, I heard from a friend that blind people did this job. And so I applied, and I went for an interview, and then I went down to, at the time was called Arkansas Enterprises for the Blind. It's since been called Lions World Services for the Blind. And they had a program down there. We went for one month of evaluation so they could determine what skills you had and what skills you needed to develop. And then... Once that was over, we went into class for, I think it was four months, training, learning about income tax and how to fill out the forms and that kind of thing. And then I started working for IRS in Buffalo in 1974, and I retired on a disability in 2001. Interestingly enough, when I applied for disability, the federal disability was based on everything but vision. They would accommodate the vision with the special equipment and so forth. So that application was strictly based on things like sleep apnea and a missing enzyme and arthritis and constant sinus infections and that kind of thing. At the same time, I applied for Social Security disability. And for that process, Blindness is a presumptive disability, so that was based strictly on blindness. So I got both. Um, There was a waiting period for the Social Security disability, but the federal disability, they give you a temporary amount until they go in and do a final computation, so you have some money in the meantime. So I'm blessed. I'm retired now, and I get two checks every month. And it's enough to live on. I'm not wealthy, but I can every once in a while take a trip or buy the groceries. I have a guide dog, so I have to get food for the dog. <laughs> that's that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Also, the reason that I'm so impressed with that is 1974 was really just some of the early beginnings of Jaws. There weren't yes. many other programs that could read a computer like that. Yeah, we had JAWS 3.2 back then. My goodness. And now they're up to, I don't know, 15 or 16 or something like that. 17. Ken, how about you? You I don't always update mine at home. I'm still using 12. You uh, know what? If it works, that's good enough. If it works, it's good enough. But Mm -hmm. let me ask Ken. I want to get Ken involved because 
Ken has had RP, and that's a condition that affects him when he was younger. But, Ken, do you remember the first time that you applied for a job and the person who owned the business said, you're asking for a job? How can you work for me? You can't see? Was that ever something anybody said to you? Uh, no. <laughs> and before I comment that, I want to react to a couple of things Kathy said. She talked about the skiing, and, uh, and there's an organization that everybody should know about called Ski for Light, a wonderful organization that uh, has programs for cross-country skiing for blind and partially sighted people, all levels, high partial, low partial, and just a wonderful bunch of sighted people that are extremely helpful. So anybody that wants to do some outdoor winter recreation, look up Speed for Light. It's a great organization. And I'm reminded of my um, public school life, too. I went through 12 years of public school and never once could see a blackboard. But uh, luckily, and uh, probably a lot of us with low vision, we develop good memories. So I can remember in college once, one of my uh, fraternity brothers was in the same class with me. He said, you know, Ken, I see during the guy, the professor's lecturing all, all the whole class period, everybody else is taking notes, and you just once in a while write down something. So, you know, there was an example, I think, of where, you know, remembering things was was a big help to me. Now, your question, what was your question again? I don't have, I don't think I've ever been told I have RP, but I had no central vision, and I was never told that. I don't talk as if they figured it out or not, but I figured it out for myself in retrospect. So, well, okay, let me ask you a question then. If all of your life you remember that you couldn't read anything on the chalkboard, all of those years, none of your classmates ever suspected that you had a vision problem throughout all those years of school? Well, I wore glasses, but I, don't, I, don't, I think it's true that nobody realized nearly how bad my eyesight was. And I think, that's, I think most of my life I went through my life fooling people and feeling good about it. <laughs> I probably shouldn't have in retrospect. <laughs> I was so sort of proud that uh, I could conceal my my impairment. I remember once when I was uh, dating a woman, and after we had a couple of dates, and I wasn't sure if she realized how bad my eyesight was. I told her about it. And I sort of apologized for it, and she said, "Oh no, I think that's great. We're in a big big room someplace, and the woman across the room is trying to flirt with you. You will be able to. You won't know that." She, so she thought it a positive. <laughs> My eyesight was little. I find that very amusing. Oh, that's very interesting. Well, you know, actually then, Ken, perhaps you have not experienced a lot of situations where people may say something to you rudely because of the fact that you are low vision. I think that's true, yeah. I think, I, as I say, I, I've, I've always liked to act. I've been a professional actor, too, so I guess I did a lot of acting through my whole life, as I say, I've apparently fooled a lot of people. Of course, there's a downside to that, too. I probably, you know, missed out on some things because if I, that I wouldn't have if I'd said to somebody, you know, I can't see what's going on. Can you tell me or can you help me get over there or something like that? So I probably, you know, gave up some things, too, by, you know. Yeah. Going. Well, you know, for me, when I first began to lose vision, as I mentioned to you, I just hid in my home, and I tried to look as though I had perfect vision. Any place I went to, I looked as though I had perfect vision. Nobody knew. But in reality, every time that I went out, something happened. I tripped. I stumbled. I didn't know who was waving at me. I said the wrong thing. I did the wrong thing. It was just very, very embarrassing. 
And when I came to grips and I learned to reveal that I had a vision problem and I began to use my cane, it really made things much easier for me. Now, Ed, what about you? For all of your life, you had low vision, the same level of low vision. Had you experienced situations when people said things to you because you did have low vision? Or would you say that your friends didn't know that you had a vision problem? Um, yeah, I all of the above, um, I can relate to what Ken was saying. In some circumstances, I was able to um, get by. And even to this day, in again, in familiar environments where I can function, um, people that know I have low vision sometimes forget. They, you know, when when we're doing things together, um, sometimes pe- people point to something on on the whiteboard or something, and, and I say, you know, um, sorry, I can't read that. You're going to have to <laughs> read it for me. You know, I I grew up not being able to see the blackboard, and first they tried to put my desk right up next to it, you know. Yeah. Um, of course, that singles me out, and and I, I feel kind of awkward, but uh, um, I, I just knew I had to sit in the front row every single class, every, you know, all through school and college, and, and that's just what I had to do, you know, and then I still couldn't see it. Yeah, even I sat in the front row, um, I had to get help. I had to ask the professors to repeat things if they wrote something up there and they didn't say what they were writing. I I just had to speak up and say, you know, please tell me what you just wrote on the board or something like that. Now, that's and, great, Ed. Now, how did you come to communicate with your professors and the other classmates that you had that you had a vision problem? Because many people have never met a person who has low vision. How did you reveal that you had a vision problem to your teachers and classmates? Well, I, I, um, if I didn't let them know ahead of time, uh, the first day of class, I, I, I would have to let them know uh, that primarily because of that reason for gaining information from the blackboard, if, if, especially if they were using a board, or then it became, you know, the PowerPoint presentations, you know, things like that. that yes. That I, I just had to let them know so that they could, I asked them to give me as much verbal information as possible and don't just assume, you know, that people can read the information up there because I can't. Gosh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful that you were able to communicate that because as a eye doctor, I see low vision students every day, and that's one of the most difficult things for them to do is to tell other students and their teachers what they can or they cannot see. Yeah, it became a matter of survival. I just I just learned that if I don't do that, I'm going to have problems and maybe worse problems down the road. So it's it, it just became the easiest thing to do, you know. Was there ever a time when you were in uh, elementary, middle, or high school or that you used the cane? Did you ever travel with a white cane that 
would allow your classmates to see you had a vision problem? Well, um, I don't know. Un- I don't know if it's unfortunately, probably unfortunately, in high school, I did not. Um, it wasn't until, actually, I even, I even was through uh, college before I got my first cane, and 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 I guess I was kind of stubborn about it, but um, <laughs> I finally realized that you know things would go much better if I let people know that I had a problem and uh, I, I could get help easier if if I used the cane. Um, so I started using an identicane. Um, if if folks know what that is, you know I. I would use it mainly for the identification, identifying me as a low vision person. And uh, but then I also used one for um, for mobility and and uh, to help, especially with stairs and and things that uh, where it was difficult to see uh, to get yes. I know uh, for me, the first time that I decided to use a cane. I was on vacation, and the airport was crowded, but I said, you know what, let me just use the cane, and this way I don't have to worry about stepping on someone's heels. So I pulled out my cane, and when I did that, it was literally like the parting of the Red Sea. Mm-hmm. Everybody, everybody just split, and I said, this is amazing. I'm walking like through the parting of the Red Sea. And as I was walking, I felt so much more comfortable, though, because I wasn't afraid that I was going to stumble over somebody's suitcase or a parking stump. I didn't have to worry that there might be a child on the floor playing and I couldn't see. Mm-hmm. But I remember we then walked into a coffee shop at the airport, and the waitress, she got us a nice booth, and I folded up my cane and such. And she looked sort of nervous, and she says, do you need a Braille menu? Because we don't have one. I said, oh, no, no. I made a joke of it because it was a truth, but I said, if I had to read the menu in Braille, I wouldn't finish it for another week. And I noticed, though, she didn't laugh. She didn't think it was funny. She comes back, and she asks my wife, okay, darling, what would you like? And my wife said, oh, I have a chef salad with blue cheese dressing. And she said, and what would he like? Ooh. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and I just felt that right in my stomach. I said, what yeah. did she say? I said that to myself. She says, he could talk. He just can't see good. You ask him. Uh, and good goes, for her. <laughs> Sir, what would you like? And I said, oh, I'll have bacon and eggs and hash browns, eggs over easy. And she says, you did quite good. <laughs> and we both laughed about it. Now, that was a situation where I think that my wife and myself, we could have taken that the wrong way and became very angry and walked out of there. But my wife handled it properly by giving me the respect to be able to handle it. And I was able to respond and still be nice and friendly about it. And it changed that woman because when she was finished, she said, she put her hand on my shoulder and said, you know, thank you so much for ordering the way that you did because I just haven't met 
blind people before, and I just didn't know what to do. But now I know that you could speak, and you could order, and you could do things like anyone else. So she thanked me. And that experience changed her life, in my opinion. Um, what about you, Raquel? Have you run into situations where people have said certain things that are just really rude? Or have you had people just pull on your cane while you're walking with your cane as they try to guide you? <laughs> oh, yeah, many times. <laughs> Especially, like, for example, um, access drivers, you know, paratransit uh, drivers. Um, sometimes I, I, I thought they were all trained um, on how to uh, treat a person with disability or, you know, blind people. But um, there there are still drivers that will just pull your cane <laughs> and they think that they would guide you that way. And I have to stop and I say, um, hold on, <laughs> uh, don't hold my cane. Uh, let me hold on to your arm, um, you know, and, and don't pull me that way. So then, uh, then they would say, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> So, yeah, there, there are times that the people do not know. Because sometimes even my own relatives, sometimes even my own brothers <laughs> would do that to me. They would pull my cane like, hey, hold on. <laughs> you know, um, I, let me hold on to your arm instead of you pulling my cane. Because I need yeah. to be able to feel the ground, you know. And sometimes, sometimes actually, believe it or not, even my, like I said, my parents, they used to tell me, my dad would say, just put that away, the cane. <laughs> you don't need that. Um, oh, and I would, when you would yeah. when you when you would use the cane with your parents, he would say, mm-hmm. "Put the cane away." Yeah, you know, she she would say that, and I said, "No, <laughs> I I need my cane. I need to be able to to feel where I'm walking, you know, um, where I'm going." So, learn not to say that anymore to me. <laughs> Well, you know, that's a, you know, Raquel, that's another example, though, that your dad, he may have actually been embarrassed to be with a person with a cane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that too. I'm, I'm sure that, that's the feeling as well. Um, and the fact that you were able to explain to him that, you know, Dad, you might be embarrassed, but I need this. I need mm-hmm. this so I can travel safely with you. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't I don't hit um, myself because sometimes you know even if when they're guiding you they they miss like a blind spot or something and you end up hitting a pole or something. Yes. Well, you know I have a similar story like that. We were inside a store at Universal City Walk or Universal Studios here in Hollywood, and my wife and I we were going through and we weren't very well trained in the sighted guide technique. So we were walking, and my wife started walking faster, and she walked me into entire display. I knocked Uh-oh. down the entire display, the whole display. Oh, wow. <laughs> there were all of these shot glasses and coffee cups just falling all over the place. We were just oh. so, so embarrassed. But I what bet you didn't we call do? it a strike, did you? <laughs> yeah, like a bullied strike. But we just then started putting things back, you know, and, and then we decided, yeah, we'll pay for the things that are broken. But they said, oh, no, that's quite all right. That's quite all right. But I'm certain that there would 
very likely be other people who may knock over display, and they're going to run out of the store because they don't want to clean it up or they don't want to pay. Kathy, have you run into any experiences like that where people are treating you differently because you're, you're low vision? Well, I had something happen in a store one time where my dog was wagging his tail. <laughs> he wagged it into a mug and it fell off the shelf and <laughs> broke. <laughs> so I had two concerns. First of all, there's broken glass. So I stood there until somebody came to clean it up and then offered to pay for the mug. They wouldn't let me pay for it, but I wouldn't leave until the cleanup crew got there because I didn't want to be responsible for anyone getting cut on it. Wow, that's so considerate. You know, a lot of people wouldn't think about that because there is shards of glass there. Right. One time a young man came by and he's walking down the aisle, and he's looking at my dog and he says, Hi, beautiful. And I turned around and said, Hi, how are you? (laughs) 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 Is that a true story? (laughs) Yes, yes. You know, people, I don't know, I think Tom and I are the only guide dog users on the call, but when you are working with your dog, people are supposed to ignore the dog because that dog is supposed to focus on you and on you only to keep you safe. And I'm not so sure the general public knows that. And sometimes, you know, they'll try to talk to the dog. One time in a grocery store, a woman said to me, what's your dog's name? And when they ask that, you know the next thing out of their mouth is going to be the name you just gave them. So I said, well, when my dog is working, his name is Confidential. And she looked at the dog and said, hello, Confidential, how are you? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh, that is so funny. It is so funny. But things that people say, it's just surprising at times. Ed, have you run into some situations that people have said some very funny things when they learned that you were visually impaired or let's say that people who come to your bed and breakfast and they find out that you have low vision or you're reading with a magnifier uh, have they ever said anything to you that's really strange um, yeah thing, things come up I'm, I'm just trying to, to think of an incident like that um, but things things do come up you know um, they they make make puns or you know some of it is is just understandable you know that they're maybe just nervous about it or unsure how to respond so you just kind of got to roll with it you know and and um, um, you know I think that's exactly it if we understand that the general public. They don't know many people who have low vision. Even when you go to eye doctors, eye doctors, many of them have never even seen a patient with low vision. So they don't know the proper etiquette that you don't pet a guide dog. They don't know that there's certain words that they shouldn't be using because it's confusing. Like when you ask them, can you tell me where is my fork? And they say, oh, it's over there. Yeah. <laughs> it's you know, right we there. <laughs> we we don't know. And I remember the first time that I went to a movie with my family when I had my cane, you know, and then this boy said, Dad, why is the blind guy going to a movie? He can't see the movie. 
And the father says, you know, why don't you go and ask him? And I said to him, you know, this is a movie that I want to see, and even though I can't see everything on the screen, I could hear what's going on, and if there's something that I need to ask a question, I could ask my son or my wife who are here, and I really enjoy it. So, you know, for these people who have not interacted with people with low vision, we could all give them a wonderful education by teaching them how we do it. Mm -hmm. And when we Mm -hmm. teach them how we're able to do all of these things in our daily life and live a happy life, they too will be able to hire or recommend and become friends with people with low vision. Because one of the things that I've heard many times from patients, they say, you know what? I would never marry a person with low vision, so nobody will ever marry me. I said, how can you say that? People aren't marrying you because of what you see, but they could marry you for what you are. Mm -hmm. And if you're a blind Mm -hmm. person who has a kind heart, who helps others, you're going to be married, guaranteed. So I want to thank every one of you for being on this panel this evening, and I want to thank Mr. Dick Burden from Airs Alley for recording this. We'll be distributing this by email, letting you know that it is on the CCLVI webpage, and we hope that you could all join us next month when we bring you more information about what's new in technology for low vision. I want to wish you a very good evening. Good night, everybody.